Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com this is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello, and welcome to the second of our summer conversations, our, our cheerful chats. We never settled, settled on a name, did we? Existential cheerful summer. Is this existential? I mean, it's an existential threat we're talking about today because yeah. we're talking to, uh, I, I think, a hero to many progressives and certainly environmentalists. It's George Monbiot. Paul McCartney. We've tried to fit him in. But it's just finding the space for a beetle, isn't it? You know, he used to lobby me, I think, on Meat Free Mondays when I was the climate change secretary. I'm sure he did. I just don't know whether he didn't love it lobby me in person, but I think he, it was a big thing of his, wasn't it, Meat Free Mondays? Yeah, it's funny. People always think John Lennon very openly political, but McCartney has plugged away on lots of stuff over the years. And, and actually, he was way ahead of the curve on plant-based foods and vegetarianism, which brings us nicely onto our conversation today. Well, we I think what we call in our business a segue. Beautiful segue, Ed. Not one of those things you sort of <laughs> travel. <laughs> Have you ever been on one of those? I don't think I'd be very good on a segue. No, you? absolutely not. I mean, no. I mean, make, make for some good video content. Yeah, I, don't, I think yes. So, So the segue is into George Monbiot, famed environmentalist writer and he has a new book which is called regenesis which is controversial it's feeding the world without devouring the planet and uh yes. he, he makes a strong argument that's the biggest thing really we, we could be doing in the face of the climate crisis is switching to farm free or a completely different method of farming and everybody switching to a plant-based diet which you've got to admire the the scale and the ambition of the idea and we're going to get into with him how possible that is because he he is an optimist and, and he thinks it is something that the world will be able to do and we have a robust conversation we certainly do and part of it is 
he's really interested in the future food production technologies and talks about, I mean, it's, it's, it's like really talking about ast- astronaut foods, some of the things that he's been out and tried and discovered, things that have been developed. Goop. Yes, goop. But not Gwyneth Paltrow. No. And and I am um, I'd say I'm, I'm knocking on for 100% vegetarian, knocking on for 70 or 80% vegan. And and the thing that I can't quite quit really is cheese. I think vegan cheese isn't there yet. And I only blame myself for not using that vegan cheese making kit that you bought me. I just don't know why you have to raise such a painful issue. <laughs> because it, I thought if I don't raise it, you will. In the midst of an otherwise pleasant conversation. <laughs> for those who, have, who weren't, haven't been tuning in for the resentment of the last 250 episodes, I bought Je- Jeff a vegan cheese maker for um, Christmas. And for, for many years, it just sat at the bottom of the cupboard. I eventually yeah. got it out in a moment of boredom one weekend and it had gone past its expiry date. Yeah. So I think you bought it out of the cheap basket because it was getting close to the expiry date. It wasn't close to the expiry date. I mean, that is totally, I mean, that is just outrageous. Did it have a Nagelow sticker on it? First of all, you kind of don't use my present and then you blame me for it. I mean, even by your standards, Lloyd, that is absolutely extraordinary. Anyway, I still haven't bought you a birthday present for this year, so which is I feel terrible about. No, no, so, you get me a bungee you know. cord. It's it's going to be fine. I still haven't got you the bungee cord. <laughs> But, oh, but, but vegan friends of mine do assure me that vegan cheese is, is a lot better than it once was. Um, but I'm, I'm yet to yet to see evidence of that. But it's certainly true of so many other things. I mean, I think we should say that I am actually really. You know, I don't eat red meat. I'm very open to vegan plant-based diets and all that. And I actually like, I had a sort of fake steak the other day. It was actually quite nice. And actually, when I make vegetarian food, I actually feel better after it than eating meat. Mm. So I'm really open to this. I just, I, I, I confess, and this will come through in the interview, I'm a little sceptical about the feasibility and uh, uh, of what he, George is proposing. He He makes a good fist of telling us why he thinks we're wrong and you're a man who likes to go big and he's certainly going big with this idea i should also add jeff that i arrived slightly late to the interview because you I had a dicky dicky tummy didn't you from the vegan cheese no i didn't so the first part half of the interview is you and george and then i make an entrance make a dramatic entrance enter stage wherever reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd george hello hello hi jeff Listen, as we were getting ready for the interview, I was knocking around online and I found myself watching your TikTok videos. <laughs> You're on TikTok. I mean, how is that going? Are you an influencer now? Can we expect to see you on Love Island next year? What's what's the plan? Well, yeah, obviously that's that's the next step. Um, to be brutally honest with you, I've never seen them because I can't get into TikTok. And so I've, I've got a friend been posting them up and she's doing a fantastic job, but I've no idea how to watch them, which shows that I probably wouldn't make a very good influence. <laughs> and to sort of make the more serious point on it, so the book is about really a, a complete change of mindset that's needed on uh, food production and consumption. And when you put your ideas on a platform like TikTok, is that thinking about future generations getting in there early because they will be decision makers at at some point well my attitude always i mean throughout my whole adult life has been to use every possible way of reaching people every possible platform i mean i've i've made an album um i i 
even did a contemporary dance gig, believe it or not. It was a brief but glorious career. I've tried every possible way of reaching people. We have podcasts like this, videos, obviously articles, books, films. I mean, it's it's a sort of multimedia blitz to try to reach people wherever they happen to be and whoever they happen to be. And obviously, you know, haven't reached enough people. None of us have reached enough people yet, but I keep experimenting and expanding the number of platforms that I'm using. Well, it's quite an interesting one because if, if somebody's seeing your tweets, they are probably either following you or following a like-minded individual, whereas something like TikTok just serves up videos to a selection of its viewers. And then if enough of them like it, then it'll send it out some more. So actually, it's good for reaching outside of your bubble, which, I mean, I guess that is a big challenge for you. Yeah, although um, I think we should constantly be aware of what our own theory of change is. In other words, the means by which we can make the changes that we want to see. And I am very suspicious of people who say you shouldn't preach to the choir, because actually my theory of change, which I think is strongly empirically supported, is that you make change by gradually expanding the social circle of acceptance of the new idea. You don't try to reach that person furthest away from you and persuade them, you know, your grumpy father-in-law, whoever it might be in in, in your particular case. um, They're the last people you're ever going to reach. Change happens by starting off with a small core of people and then reaching the people closest to that core and then the next concentric circle and the next concentric circle. And there's now a large weight of research, both observational and experimental, suggesting that the tipping point happens, a social tipping point, when you reach about 25% of the population. And then what happens is people perceive that the wind has changed And they're casting around and say, oh, my gosh, things have changed. I'd better tack round to catch that wind. Because for good or for ill, most people side with the status quo most of the time. And if they perceive that status quo has changed, they will then swing round to, to, to join that status quo. A classic example of this is marriage equality, right? Not very long ago at all. It was going to be the end of civilization. It was this horrifying prospect. Oh, my gosh, allowing gay people to marry, that will pull down everything. And gay rights campaigners very effectively um, campaigned and campaigned and campaigned and widened that circle of acceptance. And then suddenly it flipped from being completely unacceptable to, well, yes, of course, of course. Who would be so bigoted and chauvinistic to be against marriage equality? Isn't it slightly different, though, because that is one one of the great progressive changes in my lifetime, and, and you've only got to look at research on public opinion in the 90s to see how far we've come on that. But that requires attitude change. Some of the ideas in the book, you're talking about behavioural change. That, that, that father-in-law, he's not just got to think differently about food. He's got to change what's on his mm-hmm. plate. And I wonder if that's a, a slightly different issue. Well, now we see something else kicking in, which makes the momentum for change even more powerful, which is what I call the techno-ethical shift. And what we've seen with several other issues, a classic example of that is modern contraception, which helped greatly to propel an ethical shift that was already happening. So what I see happening in food is there is deep disquiet about animal farming. 
coming from two directions. One, of course, is the welfare and treatment of the animals. We kill 76 billion animals a year. And there's also tremendous disquiet about the vast environmental impacts of animal farming, which are massive and disproportionate by comparison to anything else we, we do in food production. We see a latent desire for change. But when the new technologies arrive, which are and they're arriving very quickly now, which allow us much more easily to substitute for animal products, for meat and milk and, and eggs, than the technologies we have at the moment. And I'm talking particularly about precision fermentation, about making protein-rich foods, not from animals, but from microbes. Then that lifts the lid on that latent desire. And that's a point at which change can happen very quickly indeed, behavioural change, as well as attitudinal change. It's when something becomes replaceable that it becomes intolerable. We'll come on to some of those technologies and foods later. Just to stick with this idea, just a touch longer, though, when you launch a book like this, and there are strong statements that some people are going to balk at, which include that we need to stop eating meat or we need to become farm free. When you're launching a book with ideas like that, you're, you're not worried about the people whose instant reaction is for their backs to get up. It's about galvanising the, the people who might already be sympathetic to these ideas. Yeah, I mean, this is another great political mistake which has been made over and over again. People try to appease those who are most opposed to them. Even if they can't persuade them, they try to appease them and say, oh, we can't say this because they'll get a bad reaction. Our task is to mobilise those who are going to make change and to build a, a movement um, which will drive that change. And in order to do so, telling the truth is absolutely fundamental to this. But secondly, there's this disastrous tendency to assume that the only realistic way forward um, on any issue is incremental change, slow incremental change, because people won't put up with anything more than that. We won't be able to build a constituency if we ask too much of people. It's exactly the opposite way round. If we ask too little of people, they will not rise to the occasion. We will not inspire them. We will not mobilise them. There's a very interesting book written by two of Bernie Sanders' campaigners called Rules for Revolutionaries. And it shows that when they were asking people to stuff envelopes, there were hardly any takers. But when they were asking people to take over the entire local campaign, people jumped at the chance. And something they pointed out was that the more you ask of people, the more enthusiastic they become. And, and so when people see that you're being straight with them, you're being honest. You say, right, this might be an unpalatable truth. This might be a big ask, but I'm going to say it anyway. And then when they see actually what you're proposing is commensurate with the scale of the problem, it's not some micro-consumerist bollocks to address the greatest existential crisis that humanity has ever faced. And they say, OK, I can get behind that because I can believe in it. We've created passivity. We've created despair among people because we've said there isn't any commensurate um, level of action that we can take because we're telling you to save your plastic bags and, and change your drinking straws and change from plastic cotton buds to paper shafted cotton buds. That is exactly how to make people give up. But the, the, the scale of change required, I, I can only conceive of it as incremental, I think. I can't think of a precedent for, for change on this type of scale. Well, actually, I can't think of a precedent for effective incremental change. I can think of many precedents for highly effective system change, 
like universal franchise, votes for women, civil rights, independence movements, end of, end of apartheid. I really struggle to think of, of a case where incremental change has delivered the, the transformation that, that, that is required. It just does not work. It's only when we say, right, you know, we're facing an existential crisis here. We need measures which are matched to the scale of that crisis. Only then are people going to take you seriously and mobilise behind those demands. You know, if you think of, of, of all the successful revolutionary movements in history, you know, they've not been the ones that say, what do we want? Gradual change, not quite yet, and not very much of it, please. <laughs> That's not going to get people on the streets. So on to the need to be uncompromising in the way we think about it and the, the arguments that we make. So some of the publicity around the book is, has been a backlash from the farming community who, who don't like hearing your point that the, the future should be farm free. Again, is that something not to worry about? Or is, is there a way to, to get the farming community on board with this in the way that we think about a transition from high carbon jobs in a, in a Green New Deal? Okay, well, uh, for, first of all, let's say when I talk about farm free, I'm talking about a very specific segment, which is protein rich foods and the transition away from animal farming towards precision fermentation, in other words, producing those protein-rich foods from microbes rather than from animals. But we're still going to need grain farming and we're still going to need horticulture, fruit, fruit and vegetables. But, you know, I understand that farmers are rattled by this. Of course they are. In fact, I would be very concerned if, if they weren't rattled by this because, you know, it is a, a full-on critique of a legacy industry. And farming happens to be the most damaging industry on earth. It's the number one cause of habitat destruction, of wildlife destruction, of extinction, of soil depletion, of fresh water use, of land use, which perhaps is the most important issue of all. It's one of the top causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution and of air pollution. Now, we can't do without farming altogether, but we must absolutely minimise those impacts if we're going to prevent a sixth great extinction and the complete collapse of Earth systems. That comes top of the list, even more important, arguably, than fossil fuels. Of course, we have to listen to farmers as we have to listen to everyone. But that doesn't mean that we have to succumb to the exceptionalist demands of special interests any more than we do when we're um, addressing the problems caused by the fossil fuel industry or the chemicals industry. We have to say, this is what we want. Now let's find the best way of getting there. And part of that best way must be a just transition for the people whose livelihoods are going to have to change. Now, you know, there's an important principle here, which is that you protect the people, not the legacy industries. So we want to protect the people who are currently engaged in animal farming. But that doesn't mean protecting animal farming. It means finding a better way out. And actually, it's relatively easy by comparison to other sectors because a very large number of those people are totally dependent on farm subsidies. In other words, on public money, taxpayers' money. So that makes it really quite an easy transition because you say, OK, we're going to carry on paying you this money, but we're going to pay you to do something different. So you've still got a livelihood. You can still stay on your land, but we're paying you to restore ecosystems on that land rather than keep destroying them. So that huge area of land, 
51% of the UK, which is currently producing livestock directly, and far more land outside the UK on top of that, um, which is producing feed for livestock that we grow in this country, that land could instead be used for the restoration of wild ecosystems, for forests, for wetlands, for the other wild ecosystems on which the great majority of the world's species depend, because most species cannot survive in an ecosystem which is also harbouring an extractive industry like livestock farming. And that's it's an interesting one, actually, thinking about the reuse of that land for rewilding. Your previous book was about that, and you were probably called you know a bit a bit crazy at the time, right? Oh, With a some bit of those crazy. Ideas. Oh, boy, <laughs> that is the understatement <laughs> understatement of my year. Listen, when when Farrell came out in twenty thirteen, I was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Now I admit I am actually mad, bad, and dangerous to know, but I, I was considered. A, a total lunatic. I mean, rewilding. Most people had never heard this term. Those who had were horrified by it. It was an outrageous idea. And yet another of those ideas which will end civilization as we know it. And between 2013 and now, rewilding has become so mainstream that this year, rewilding Britain's garden at Chelsea one best in show. Wow. You don't get more establishment than that, right? Oh, it must feel good. To, you feel feel vindicated, right? Well, well, I mean, what I feel good about is it shows how rapidly change can happen and how an idea can go from pariah status to broad acceptance. And what happened is we, we reached that social tipping point. And now rewilding is, by almost everyone, considered a good thing. And we can do the same with the far greater scale of rewilding that I'm calling for now, because it is the thing which will make the difference as to whether or not we get through this century. You know, it's not just, just that by rewilding very large tracts of the planet, the ecological restoration of huge tracts of the planet, we can stop the sixth great extinction and stop the collapse of ecosystems. But we can also draw down a significant portion of the carbon dioxide that we've already released into the atmosphere. And what is the cheapest, quickest, most effective and most benign way of doing that? Well, it is the restoration of natural ecosystems. In one go, you can prevent ecological breakdown and help to prevent climate breakdown. We need, first of all, to recognise that arguably the most important of all environmental metrics is the amount of land you use and to recognise what is a major cause of that land use it is farming and overwhelmingly livestock farming. So 40% of the planet's surface is used for farming by comparison to 1% for all human habitation. 40% is used for farming. Of that, the 12% is used for crops and a large proportion of that is fed to animals before it reaches humans. And 28% of the planet's surface is used for grazing livestock. And out of that 28% of, of the planet's surface, the animals fed on grazing alone produce just 1% of our protein. This is a phenomenally profligate, wasteful way of using that most important of all environmental resources, the surface of the earth. And every hectare used for livestock farming is a hectare we can't use for wild ecosystems, for those forests, for those savannas, for those wetlands, for those natural grasslands on which the great majority of species and indeed earth systems themselves depend. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. 
Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ed has arrived. Hello, Ed. I'm really sorry to be late. I read your book thoroughly. I think it's really important to take it seriously. I think there's a number of things that I think it's interesting to talk through. One is... You yourself say in the book that changing behavior is really hard, but it seems to me that you are asking for an absolutely colossal change in behavior, which is, I mean, is your position really that everybody's got to be a vegan? So you're talking about changing behavior by moral suasion. That that, that was the point I made, that, you know, if you're going to use moral suasion alone, it's going to be really hard to change. But changing behavior through political mobilization and particularly with the help of the techno-ethical shift that Jeff and I have been discussing, yeah. that, that's an entirely different mode of change to saying, eat up your greens. The thing is, I'm all in favour of big change, and I'm all in favour of change that is going to get us to the leap we need to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. You've got the current government's position, which is basically we are going to say nothing about this issue, mm. and that is the wrong position. I completely agree with you about that. And actually, I think you you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the direction of travel, particularly of younger people, is towards more plant-based diets. I think you could do a huge amount with public engagement. Do nothing position is not my position. But everybody's got to be a vegan. Why should we believe that that is essential in order to meet net zero? Frankly, Ed, I think your theory of change is the wrong one. You know, if, if you think that, you know, we mustn't frighten the horses, we must take it slowly. My theory of change is system change. It's, it's, it's major, drastic and very rapid change. And I think that's the only change which has ever been effective. And I'm not saying to people, you know, go vegan out of the goodness of your heart. I'm saying, you know, we're going to provide non-meat products which are as good as meat, which are cheaper and which are healthier for you. Once you do that, then suddenly the question looms large in almost everyone's minds. Why are we still eating animals? Why are we still keeping animals in these appalling conditions, creating pollution disasters, transforming the surface of the planet, when we could do it more cheaply, without the cruelty and without the pollution? That's when the techno-ethical shift happens. Let's talk about some of those solutions. You met a lot of people for the book. Do you want to talk to us about some of the favourite ideas that you encountered out there? Sure. So what I tried to look for were technologies and approaches 
which sort of broke the grim formula um, that in order to produce a certain amount of food, you have to do a certain amount of damage. I want high yield food production. It's absolutely essential. If it's low yield, that means more land is going to be required to produce a given amount of food. Out of the farm options I looked at, perhaps the, the two most exciting ones are um, uh, perennial grain crops and a new model of horticulture. Almost all the grain we eat comes from annual crops and large areas are dominated by annual plants are rare in nature and they generally only occur in the wake of a disaster. So when there's been a landslide or a fire or a volcanic eruption and everything's been killed, then the annual plants can come in, they reproduce very quickly, they can occupy that space. And it's been a dream of scientists for the past century or so to produce perennial grain crops. And finally, that dream is materialising. There's a group called the Land Institute, which together with Yunnan at University in southern China has already produced the first fully commercialised new perennial grain crop, which is a rice variety, now being grown already on thousands of hectares of, of land in southern China. Six consecutive harvests from the same plants still have the same yield as annual rice. Now, eventually you'll, you'll have to replace them, but we're talking about far less environmental damage. We're also talking about a much greater potential to withstand environmental shocks. So that, that's one of the ideas which really fascinates me. I think it's got enormous potential. In horticulture, there's a fascinating series of developments, pioneered above all by a British grower called Ian Tolhurst, or Tolly, who has effectively anticipated by 30 years or so new developments in soil ecology. And he has developed a way of growing fruit and veg, which are considered vegetables considered to have a very high nutrient demand without any fertilizer or any manure. It's a quite extraordinary achievement and it's on pretty poor land. It's grade three B land, which is generally considered completely unsuitable for horticulture. It's 40% stone. And yet he, he's managed to do this partly through an intensely conserved nutrient cycle where he doesn't let nutrients wash off the land or wash through the land but partly by mediating the relationship between plants and the bacteria and fungi in the soil which deliver the nutrients to them and by very subtly altering the carbon content of the soil through um, putting a very small amount of wood chips on um, um, an average of one millimeter per, per, per year what he appears to have done is to ensure that those bacteria and fungi immobilise nutrients when they're not required, lock them up, which is absolutely essential because that stops them washing off the land, and then deliver them to the plant only as and when they're required. His soil has become progressively more fertile and his crop yields have risen and risen until they've hit the lower bound of what conventional growers are producing on good land. You can see what difference that would make at scale, clearly. And just on um, the grumpy father-in-law, yeah, he's going to be need to convince that something else can go where that steak or that that burger is. W what's happening in the world of protein replacements? Okay, so so this is this is the big one, really, which is replacing our protein-rich foods and ideally replacing not just animal products but also soya and oil palm and coconut, all of which causing a great deal of environmental damage. We now have the means of replacing all those sources of protein and fat-rich foods because we're seeing a development by several companies now of what's called precision fermentation, which is basically an enhanced form of brewing. 
There's nothing very new about this. It is basically just brewing. It looks very similar to a modern brewery. The basic technologies were developed by NASA in the 1960s in the hope of feeding astronauts in space, but they're not rocket science. The one I went to see in Helsinki is using a soil bacterium called Cupriovides necator, which is a hydrogen oxygenating bacterium. It eats hydrogen. That's the feedstock. You don't have to feed it on any crop or anything else produced by farming. You just feed it on hydrogen. And you you multiply them up with a tiny fraction of the land footprint, a tiny fraction of the water footprint, a tiny fraction of the nutrient footprint of any of the products produced by farming. And what comes out the end of it is a very protein-rich flour. It's about 60% protein, about 30% fat which you can basically turn into anything. I was the first person outside the lab to eat a pancake made of it. A small flip for man. (laughs) And how was that pancake? The amazing thing about that pancake is it tasted just like a pancake. But of course, they're not just in the business of making pancakes. I mean, this this could utterly transform the animal product substitution market, which at the moment, you know, isn't that great. It's, it's got a lot better. I mean, I, I lived through the 90s. I so. quite like the... I mean, I think the plant-based products are pretty nice. I mean, pretty good, actually. Well, they have got a lot better, but the problem is they have quite a long list of ingredients, principally because right. they're using things like soya and coconut oil, and you have to disguise the taste of those. You know, they're quite right. strong tasting. They don't taste anything like meat. But the thing is, if you're making your uh, proteins and fats from precision fermentation, you don't have any of those problems. I mean, it just comes out tasting of protein. You know, it's just got that sort of very sort of eggy, proteiny, meaty um, flavor straight away. And so you're not having to do all that um, extra processing and all those extra ingredients, which are a problem. I mean, as you say, it's got better, but it's, it's not good enough yet, I, I don't think. Can we talk about the cost of living in this context? I think you talked about somebody in the book who came up to you at the Hay Festival and said the real issue is that food is too cheap and, mm. and you disagree quite strongly yeah. and rightly. How should we think about the way to deliver affordable food for people? Yeah, so, so, so this is part of it in that we're looking at potentially extremely cheap protein-rich foods because unlike in farming, as soon as you move it into the factory of modular production, you're looking at very steep cost curves, which can greatly reduce the price very quickly indeed. Whereas in agriculture, dealing with multicellular organisms, you hit biological limits pretty quickly. And you know they've more or less extracted all the cost efficiencies they can at enormous cost to the animals because all of those have made the welfare of animals appalling. So you've got the potential for a very, very cheap source of protein and fat-rich foods, which can, this is the important thing, be produced anywhere on earth. What I would like to see is microbreweries on the edge of every town. So if you think of countries particularly in North Africa, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, which are totally import-dependent at the moment, and having to buy their food imports with soft currencies on a hard currency market. They're at the end of the chain. They're constantly threatened with the disruption of that food chain, which is now highly fragile, as we've seen with the invasion of Ukraine, and face starvation regularly. But you know, one, one thing that most countries which are threatened with um, intense food insecurity have is sunlight and lots of it. And that's all you need to to power this system. You don't need any other ongoing imports. I mean, a tiny bit of nutrients, tiny bit of fertiliser, but far, far less than farming requires. Not very much water because you can recycle the water, carbon dioxide drawn directly from the air and hydrogen made from electricity, which you can produce on site 
with solar panels. And so suddenly you can have these autonomously operating breweries which are producing protein and fat-rich foods, which people desperately need and which tend to be expensive and in short supply in places where people are food insecure locally. Now, you know, a lot of food sovereignty campaigners are horrified by the idea of precision fermentation, but, you know, what are they going to do instead? Because if people don't, if there's no fertile land uh, and there's no water, you know, and you can't grow your food locally, how do you propose that people are going to survive? Well, you know, I believe precision fermentation can deliver food sovereignty and food security far more effectively than agriculture can. Just talk to us a little bit, and you've touched on it there, George. You, you also take aim at the myth, the thinkers you see it, of, sort of locally grown food being better and organic farming. Do you want to cover both of those? Sure. So, so there is this sort of move towards de-intensification, and I absolutely accept all the problems with intensive agriculture. But the answer is not to switch towards extensive farming. And so if we look, first of all, at organic, you know, there's, I mean, eventually I would love to see high-yield organic farming. But at the moment, on average, organic farming is much lower yield than conventional farming, and that means it occupies more land. You know, if it's 30% uh, less productive, that means you have to use 30% more land to grow the same amount of food. And there's another problem with organic, which is which really shocked me. It surprised me massively because at the heart of organic farming is meant to be closing the nutrient loop. You don't lose nutrients and you recycle them and, and they go round and round. But according to one of the papers I read, organic farming loses 37% more nitrogen than conventional farming does. So you think, well, hang on a moment, how on earth does it sustain itself? Well, by the way, it loses this because it's dependent on animal manure, which is tremendously leaky because it's so slow release. So in other words, you have to apply it long before the crop is ready to receive it and it keeps releasing long after the crop has been harvested. And so in, instead of just feeding the crop, um, that nitrogen is released either as nitrates going into the groundwater or into the rivers or as nitrous oxide going into the atmosphere, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. I read the Soil Association Organic Standards and found that if you have a deficit of fertility caused by the leakage from your farm, you can buy animal manure from another farm, a conventional farm. In other words, you can use artificial nitrogen, Harbour Bosch nitrogen, as long as it's first been through someone else's animals. It just makes no sense at all. You don't have to screen it for antibiotic residues, for, for, for heavy metals, for all the other contaminants that get into manure. Um, and, and so what you're paying for is not what you're getting here. And what about locally grown, George? Sure. So, so look, there, there might be very good social reasons for local food production. You know, and, and I totally see the, the virtues of producing local food networks, community-supported agriculture and all that. Um, and there might be certain environmental reasons behind it, but the climate reasons just are very seldom there. People, there's been this massive overemphasis of food miles, and you know, of course we should um, be, be constantly aware of, of all the causes of climate breakdown. But food miles are really tiny proportion of the overall climate impact of the food that you're eating. It's far more important what the food is than where it comes from. So on my calculations, you could ship a kilo of dried beans 100 times around the planet before it had the climate impact 
of a kilo of beef from the farm next door. So it's so much of a question of what are the components of our diet rather than where is it coming from. And whether the food is local or not, on the whole, has very, very little impact on on its total environmental footprint. Before we, we finish on a note of optimism, I did want to ask you about one thing. The phrase, one of the greatest threats to life on earth is poetry, <laughs> which is provocative. And, and then you get in really into the importance of narrative in culture. But do you want to talk to us a little bit about that idea and how it plays into uh, the subjects we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, it is a bit provocative. And I am a big fan of poetry. But, you know, we I think we need to be aware of the way in which culture bears a, 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 upon behaviour and particularly of what um, the great cognitive historian Jeremy Lent calls root metaphors. These are ideas which are so deeply embedded in our minds that we don't even recognise them as ide- ideas. We just accept them as the way the world is. This is how things are. And a very powerful root metaphor is this pastoral myth, this idea that um, the herder with his or her flock of sheep or cattle, is a seat of innocence and purity, is is at the heart of all that is good in our culture, whereas the city is evil and corrupt. And this story uh, really kicked off in secular culture with the poet Theocritus, writing in the 3rd century BC. And there was a parallel strand working its way through the Bible. And then these two traditions fused with great effect in the Renaissance until it dies away in the 18th century. But it came back with a vengeance in the 20th century in two forms. First of all, in children's books for very, very young children, the first books you're ever likely to see. And a remarkably high proportion of those are about the idealised livestock farm where there's a rosy-cheeked farmer and one cow, one pig, one dog, one cat, one horse, one chicken. They all talk to each other. They all live in harmony together as if they're a family. There's no indication of why they might be there and where they might be heading, of course. And this thing, this livestock farm, which, you know, and having worked on an intensive pig farm, I can testify to this, is a place of horror, is portrayed at the very dawnings of consciousness as a place of safety and comfort. And that becomes a very deeply embedded idea in our minds. So before we even get to talking about it, pe- people have a very strong, sentimental, deep-rooted attachment yeah. to their yeah. idea of what it is. Which are very reluctant to let go of. I mean, it's changing. It's changing very fast, but it's a, it's a very powerful force. George, let's end on brand, uh, reasons to be cheerful. You know, you, you care deeply about uh, the environment and the climate crisis. How, how do you stay cheerful? Well, it's because... I, I, I've i been looking at systemic change and understood that just as earth systems have tipping points, social systems have tipping points too. And that those tipping points are much easier to reach, easier to achieve than we assumed. In fact, there's one paper showing that in 2019, Fridays for Future came within a whisker of that social tipping point across Europe. And it looked as if we were going to see transformative political change. And then, of course, the pandemic turned up and killed it. So it's immensely frustrating. But, you know, it shows we can get there. And it's because of, you know, my deeper understanding now than I had before of complex systems that I've become more optimistic. But, of course, the big question is, can we reach the social tipping point before we reach the environmental tipping point? And that is a cliffhanger on which to end. 
Stay tuned. George Monbiot, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Jeff. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Emma Corsham is our audio producer, Rachel Barmer. Uh, produces all the content, books all the guests, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed, composer music. Our idents were made by James Deacon, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.